And welcome to another episode of Two Medics and One Mic. Your presenters are Imran Lasker and Thrusha Gudwatna. So hello and welcome to another episode of the Two Medics podcast. My name is Imran Lasker. I'm a consultant radiologist. Hi, I'm Thrusha Gudwatna. I'm a cardiology registrar subspecializing in intervention. And, you know, this is what's happening. I'm getting completely hounded. You know, one minute it's uh, dogs on Twitter. Uh, and the next thing you know, we've got more and more cardiologists getting involved in this podcast. We've got another another cardiologist. Do we have any more? I mean, how many more are we going to bring on? Go on then. <laughs> Cardiology person, please introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lynn Miller. I am a consultant cardiologist in Fife, Scotland, with specialist interests in adult congenital heart disease and obstetric cardiology. Oh, hang on. Does that make you a gooch? That makes you a gooch. Is that a gooch? No, 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 it's not Gucci anymore, it's ACHD. Oh, it changed. Oh, yeah. why did they change? Is it because it sounded funny? Is <laughs> <Yeah>. it really? <laughs> I remember when Thrusha mentioned on an episode, that was the first day I learned about Gooch, and I was thinking, did you just say that? I had to get, Thrusha, can you explain what you mean by Gooch? And you told me, like, unbelievable, that no, has no one else picked up on this? Do I have like a really low sense of humor? Which I know I do, but um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it was funny when I heard that. So yeah, quite an interesting field that you're, you're into. Um, and you're all the way in Scotland, as far away, I can hear it in your accent as well. Right, have you, have you, did you grow up in Scotland? I did, I grew up in Glasgow and um, most Glaswegians go to university in Glasgow and then live in Glasgow, so I did that for a while and then made this massive move to Edinburgh, which is geographically 40 miles to the east, culturally. Oh, wow, really? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a very different kind of city and really hated it for a year or two, find it really mm. unfriendly. Um, and then it grew on me. And then I married a guy from Edinburgh who hates Glasgow who wouldn't let me move back west. Well, you mentioned in Farboards, the Echo Chamber podcast, that um, it was the kind of the way that people are a bit more um, more reserved, whereas like in Glasgow, people are much more likely to... Yeah, really reserved, yeah. Much more private in Edinburgh. Somehow it kind of made you value your own kind of space. and yeah. I love standing at a bus stop and not talking to anybody now. Fair enough. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got, I mentioned my cousin a few times <laughs> on the podcast, but he's from a little tiny island in Sweden. And when he came to London the first time, he just kept trying to talk to people. And I, look, in London, no one talks to anyone, just stop it. And he was just on the tube. Hi, how's it going? Hi. And I was like, oh, please, you're going to get us injured. This is what's going to happen. Yeah. We're going to get in trouble. Just stop it now. Um, anyway, look, speaking of trouble, Twitter's been a bit of trouble this week, hasn't it? We've had a, a fair yeah. few things come in. Yeah, as ever. As ever. Lots and lots of things coming in. Um, where do we even start? I guess, I don't know. I feel like media would be a good one. Don't you think media? There's been lots of media <laughs> stuff. What do you think? Yeah, sure. So what's been going on, Darusha? Give us, give us a tweet to talk about. Okay. Well, I mean, there's this tweet from uh, Rosie, so Dr. Rosie Brewer. There is this whole, uh, so the headline was doctors face penalties for seeing too few patients. And I think that headline in itself is kind of a dog whistle, isn't it? Mm. Um, so it's also completely against mm. data. I mean, there's well-published data showing how many more um, appointments have been performed in the last year compared uh, Lynn I mean you could hit me with your data but I mean I've got an opinion that matters so that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's the way it is isn't it I mean that's that's what happens yeah you know data and all that stuff but then you know someone just says something and it almost becomes fact for as long as everyone wants to talk about it isn't it and so we've seen this again and again doctors facing you know but when I see penalties I always think about speeding fines I always think about like you know parking parking on the double yellow line or something I mean is that what's going on now like if they're not 
seeing enough patients face to face, they might as well be getting points on their car, points on their license. And um, yeah, I don't that, know. Ties in, that ties in quite nicely with uh, Rosie's kind of. Uh, kind of comment on it which is beatings will continue like as if like the penalties are going to be something that helps performance yeah. anyway mm. um i like how it's like javid plans to tackle like to tackle the underperformance of gps like oh it's just such such a little puff piece isn't it he wouldn't even he wouldn't even meet them last week he cancelled going to the conference yeah i know he was busy wasn't he yeah busy. he wanted to do it did he oh, want to man. do it remotely <laughs> yeah <laughs> Is that who, um, is, is he who Chris Whitty was referring to when he said, don't take criticism from someone you wouldn't take advice from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quite possibly. I mean, what advice would you take from Sajid Javid anyway? Oh. It wouldn't be about hair kit. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that as a fellow bold person, can't I? Mm, dear. <laughs> Chris Whitty went. He went in person. He did an eight-hour uh, yeah, eight yeah. journey to go and see GPs. He's a hero, isn't he? He's an absolute He's an hero. absolute hero. Yeah, unlike Javid. God. yeah um but speaking of like media headlines there was this other one right where which was quite funny and i thought it was good to be per- it was good to be like a kind of delicious chef's kiss for the uh <laughs> for the podcast which is where they were talking about this guy who'd written into the times and he was complaining about medical students these days i was taught the essentials of consultation you know all that kind of nonsense that guff and then someone looked it up and was like actually that that doctor's uh not even alive and i was um but then i've subsequently seen that um Missed, uh, that Dr. Spyro is someone else. So there's two Dr. Spyros. There was, and so they were talking. So, so the, the person, yeah, this person is still alive and sending not. But it's like med school, like 1949. <laughs> yeah, God, uh, alive and well, sending nonsense letters to the Times. Good one, good one, Dr. Spyro. I mean, the thing is, it's one of those sentiments that, like, it, it might as well. I mean, the thing is, look, there's someone tweeted about this, and everyone thought it was coming from someone who's from the from, coming from the dead. And it may as well it may as well have been right. I mean, you could yeah. turn around and say, "Yeah, I believe that because it is that old and that completely out of touch with everything that's going on." That it is someone speaking from the dead, isn't it? I mean, I'm not saying this person's dead or anything, but you know, it, it was so kind of. We see there was someone else, wasn't there? We were talking about earlier that there is someone else that like, every now and again the media oh. just trolley him out and he comes out with all this stuff. Myron Thomas. I think yeah. that's the guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he yeah. just talks about all this stuff. <laughs> And part of the problem is that they'll be talking about things they'd have no expertise in. And because they've got the word doctor in front of their name, it means that they could, they've got the authority to talk about all sorts of things, uh, which is a really sad situation uh, when it comes to who people listen to uh, in, the, in the media, right? Um, right? But on top of this stuff that we've seen in the media, we also saw this thing about uh, burnt out GPs need a dose of reality from uh, another journalist from The Telegraph this time. Or the, I've heard it being, being called the Tory Graph. So it just seems that what, yeah, they fall in line with one another, don't yeah. they, with their sentiments. A real attack on GPs yet again that we're seeing. And um, yeah, I mean, do GPs need a dose of reality? Is that, what, is that what's going on? I mean, what's happening? I don't think these people will have a clue what reality of GP life is. I mean, I think I think a lot a lot of people in in general public think that doctors' working hours are spent with a patient the whole time, and they, they have absolutely no idea of this massive amount of work mm. that there is. Kind of on top of that, your your working day does not start and finish with your outpatient clinic or your you know your GP clinic. And and actually, I think my my impression is that from GP frames is that that part of the workload is the one that has 
absolutely kind of exploded in the last few years. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was telling you guys that genuinely, genuinely, when I was in med school, I thought GP would be the easier thing to do. When I was actually training, I used to think, oh, you know, I should just done GP. This is too much for me. And then recently I, I met up with a few friends of mine who are GPs and I was like, listen, you know, um, I've been doing this Twitter thing a lot recently and uh, they're saying it's pretty hard for you guys, is it? And they're like, yes. And they were literally telling me about, I think they've got some sort of messaging systems, like a what, like some sort of WhatsApp system where the patient can literally just basically send a message because they're not feeling well and they've got to deal with it. And so every morning now they get a barrage of messages they've got to work, work through. The Plus I've got the paperwork. So my friend's coming home with a laptop, putting his kids to sleep and then logging in again and finishing his paperwork. I mean, the guy's working some serious hours. And so I thought, you know, and uh, I and he's he used to be a chiller, so um, I, I can only imagine if a chiller like that suddenly have to work quite hard. I imagine what the hard working GPs are doing. Also working even harder than that. I do feel bad for him. <laughs> I think these incessant headlines, though. I mean, so that mud has to like stick, and so you. I mean, I'm you are seeing like members of the public kind of starting to echo that sentiment, like, or you know, when a GP is going to see people face to face and all this kind of like nonsense. Mm. And um, after a while, like you know, the I guess you can see that the morale already is at a kind of um, a massive low, and you can see that it's kind of like targeted, and you know, there is an agenda by even this this article is by James Lefanu, mm. who's a who's the author of that uh, a book called The Rise and Fall of Modern Medicine. Mm. He's a retired GP who turned into this kind of popular science author. Mm. And he thinks that kind of like non-invasive in, like interventions are like the ruin of medicine. You can't tell, you can't say that to a cardiologist. <laughs> That's like bread and butter. No, please. We need to yeah, intervene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's like that's like part of my title but like um yeah. they they all these people all have agendas don't they and they just essentially want to see gp crash and burn so that they can just uh mop it up and send it to their mates in, from the states and whatever it's just i mean but lynn we're, so, we're talking about this isn't it like there's so much of being a doctor that is not to do with actually physically being a doctor in the terms of what the, the media absolutely. thinks or what public thinks i mean how much paperwork yeah. do you really you, there's so much stuff that you do that's paperwork isn't it yeah so so in my consultant job plan, I've got um, direct clinical time and then I've got supporting activities, which is kind of non-clinical stuff. But all the all the clinically based admin counts as clinical work. But to be honest, that ends up taking up all the non-clinical stuff. And then you end up doing all your other things that, ne- you know, that need to be done to run a department, to develop departmental services and things. Mm. Um, yeah, you end up... Just doing all that in the time yeah it's like that isn't it it's, i mean i've seen a few of these management roles i've said this before like i've seen a few management roles fly my way and i've been looking at it and say i know you're going to give me this much time for that management role but i know that that management role is going to take far longer than that and so I, i've so far been a bit like no thanks not doing it not doing it unless you give me more time which is realistic to put into the job i, I can't i can't be doing that kind of thing right now um but yeah. that's the thing public don't see that they just want to they I mean, they just want to see you talk to them having a conversation and then you know i think part what ends up happening is that their own experience of things start to navigate the entire view of what life must really be like so if you're not being able to call Mm. up your gp that must mean that that is a reality of what's going on and it kind of brings me along to a a message a a tweet that came out from partha this week where um he tweeted about how um it was about um people b-a-m-e doctors had to apply more times to get consultant jobs than their white counterparts did did we see that did does someone phrase that better than i did Well, um, it was along the lines of if you're from a minority background, then it, you're, um, I think you're six times less likely or you had to apply six times more often. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, I mean, moving the kind of the blanket term to the side, like um, 
her response was this kind of, how is it then that I see so many of them? Oh, yeah, there was someone who came out of nowhere and said, oh, how, how's it? But that's my experience. Yeah. I've not seen a white doctor in years. <laughs> is that what she, oh, God. I mean, the thing was, is that um, I saw it and I just didn't really know. It was kind of, it, it was a mutual person, but I guess it's one of those people who followed me and I followed them back. Isn't that what Twitter etiquette is or something? And then I was like, oh God. Like, yeah. Um, I do, but then when I saw that, I was like, how do I deal with this? And then um, I asked, um, I think I asked Bethan and Bethan was like, you just block them. I, like, okay. <laughs> I did. Yeah, just block them. Um, yeah. But then it was interesting to see her response, right? So that was kind of something that kind of was in uh, where she goes stated a fact backed up by national stats apparently and got myself a block when did the art of debate become reduced to la 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 I don't want to hear you and that's open to people to who follows her to respond to only so that's interesting do you know there's so much crap on Twitter that you could respond to everything but ultimately mm. you have to look after yourself mm. and your emotional equilibrium and if you are dealing with a blatant racist, have you got enough emotional energy at that point to deal with that? Are you actually going to change your mind? Mm. Probably not. I guess in this particular instance, though, I think we've seen this again and again where someone is like, well, that's not my experience. And it's like, well, I know I know it's not your experience, but your experience is not representative of everyone's experience. Can you at least go that far? And if they're not willing to engage that much, then you think, well, this is a dead argument then, isn't it? Like, um, And I think Therusha has mentioned a few yeah. times, sometimes you, you end up replying to a message, hoping that someone else who sees that will actually read your reply and think, oh, actually, maybe they've got a point there. But you're right, Lynn. I mean, it's it's difficult. How much, how much energy have you got to deal with people that are, fully grown adults are going to come out with 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 stuff like that isn't it i mean where do you even go with that yeah and i think i think the thing is is that for them like the debate is kind of purely almost intellectual like it's, it's not they have no stakes in the game mm. whereas yes. they're kind of debating with someone or debate with someone else who's who's kind of invested in it who <laughs> absolutely does yeah and i think there's a there's a kind of quote isn't it by like the amazing tony morrison where they ask you to kind of provide this kind of evidence and you do and then but they're not happy with that and they want you to do that and so then you end up just spending all this energy and wasting all this time just providing them with stuff that they're not even going to listen to anyway mm. so it's a real distraction so what you're then doing is expending your emotional energy and that's fine you know you might be feeling in a great place that day and you might be <laughs> feeling up for it but i don't think there's any shame in stepping away from yeah fair enough something like that but i mean it does bring us on to another tweet that i think Therusha you quite liked it was a bit too wordy for me but it was talking about um it was about the about the expert talking to a layman right oh yeah sure so um so this was about i mean moving away from racism it was so this person used the example of a chess player and he says the difference between a layman and an expert is astronomical and the average adult with no chess training will beat the average five-year-old with no chess training 100 times out of 100 times under normal conditions and then kind of going on to extrapolate so if uh, a normal adult was playing like an amateur chess champion um, then they'd lose 100 times and then if they were to play against someone who was like in the top thousand in the world they'd lose 100 times and if they were go to go against a grandmaster and I guess the kind of um, the, the, the point was that top performers in an intellectual domain outperform even an experienced amateur by a similar margin. Mm. And so I guess they were trying to say that um, for some things, it's very difficult to take the amateur, take an amateur person all the way along a journey with you. 
Um, and they made the comparison to researchers on Twitter. So it's like, this is where relying on common sense gets you. I mean, to an actual expert, you look like an infant having a tantrum because the world is too complicated for you to understand. Mm. And I guess in some ways, that last sentiment comes across as rather arrogant. But yeah, so should we talk about that? Yeah, that um, that last that last statement, you kind of slightly lost, <laughs> lost me a bit, yeah, just sounded sure. really patronising. I don't know, I have a... I have a real kind of passion for communicating concepts to patients. And yes, we're the experts and they are the laymen. But I, I really feel strongly that that does not mean that we then say, well, I'm the expert. This is, this is how it is. I think we have a responsibility to go to them and kind of bring them towards us. And I just, there was yeah, just something about the tone of that thread that, just yeah jarred slightly with me i think i mean what you're saying as well like uh, i i guess us as doctors who are meant to be the experts quotation marks um i've got a responsibility to try and explain to to laymen who i guess are the patients in this particular regard um you know what's going on but um i guess the reason why i kind of felt like i related a little bit to the conversation that you had about racism on some level is that you have to for a layman to let's say there is a layman they've got to on some level believe or accept that what you're saying is true on some level right they have to be like okay there are some things i'll have to accept uh, you know we don't have enough time or i don't have yeah. enough life, life experience or education to be able to say look i get what you say i'm gonna let, yeah. get it from the from the outset so for someone like this lady who had a bit of an altercation saying, look, I've only ever seen, I've only, I've only ever seen brown, brown doctors. So why are you talk, telling me there's only white, there's, you know, only white people getting jobs? I mean, they're limited life experience and then trying to, you trying to explain to them that actually, look, can we take a step back here and look at the facts prior to, prior to your conclusion is difficult. And I find that, you know, these kind of people end up being the difficult patients. I found that you know it, they can be difficult to explain things to. I mean, for work, for the worst worst you know example possible, like if you've got a patient who doesn't even believe in a cell to begin with, then where do you go with that? Where do you start? Right? Yeah, I suppose it's like the conversations that I will have with patients about anticoagulation, and they will have mm. one friend who's on yeah. morphine and had a bleed or something, and so they don't want to go on morphine. And I and mm. I'm trying to say, well, I have known thousands of patients. On morphine and actually i know mm. that the risks are much smaller than you think they are i mean i remember coming across a person who came to clinic because some patients the the people are so different aren't they like some people when you, you explain lots of concepts to like i remember a particular patient who i saw who's a little bit older and i was talking to her about um mitral valve surgery and she was there with her son and i think it got to a point where i must have just talked too much or explained too much because they were just completely bewildered and i remember my boss came in and literally just get, he was like, is this or that? And that, and they were like, that's what we wanted to hear. Oh. And I'd spent maybe 20 <laughs> minutes or like half an hour trying to kind of do this, like trying to give them like really balanced explanation and stuff. But I think all they wanted was someone to be like, it's either this or that. Whereas I remember this other patient who'd, um, he'd come to clinic and he'd been prescribed warfarin, aspirin and clopidogrel. And he'd stopped taking the aspirin and clopidogrel because he was like, well, they all thin my blood. And so... You know, why do I don't they they just put me onto three of them. I assumed it was a mistake. And he was really angry. He was like, nobody explained anything to me. Like I was just put onto these blood thinners and whatever. And he wanted a really in-depth conversation. I remember being like, oh my God, like I'm going to talk about clotting cascades. And stuff. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? But, you know, he, he really wanted it. He was like, I'm an engineer. I want to understand everything. And so it, it's just, 
it strikes me that the there uh, it kind of varies from one person to the other, right? And so, for some people, their a simplistic explanation, yeah, and really distilling it down is perfect. And for others, they just um, yeah, it's just not. But would your interaction be different if there were a doctor? <laughs> segue. <laughs> yeah. Nice segue. I can't get away um, with them anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so this references a tweet from um, Ashley Winter who is a urologist in the States. And she says, um, if you're a doctor and you come to an appointment, please tell me you're a doctor, because not because I will treat you differently, but because it's easier to speak in jargon. I mean, does it help you to speak in jargon? Is it like when you meet someone, who, you know, when you're in a foreign country and someone comes in and they speak English too, like, yes, I can I can talk now. Is that what it is? I don't, I don't think it's about the jargon so much as perhaps about the style of communication. And sometimes it is about the jargon. So I, I said to you guys earlier, I'm going as a patient tomorrow to uh, an outpatient clinic as a new patient. And it's not my specialty of expertise, but it is a specialty that I spent a long time working in as a junior. And so I'm really comfortable with that specialty. And if the consultant tomorrow starts speaking to me, you know, mm. massively, basically, I would find that unhelpful. When I had my children and I needed obstetric input, I knew nothing about obstetrics. Um, and I still wanted them to know that I was a doctor because I do think that that alters how you frame conversations mm. and discussions and perhaps discussions about risk and things. But I felt very happy to say to them, this isn't my area of expertise. Just tell me what you think should be done. But I absolutely would want them to know that I was a doctor. And when I'm a doctor, I absolutely want to know if one of my patients or relative mm. with a patient is a doctor because it definitely alters your conversation. So how do you do it? So they you go, hi. When you, so when you walk into the room, do you go, hi, I'm Dr. Miller? Or what, how are you going to, because otherwise it sounds like a humble brag, maybe. Well, so, well, the guy tomorrow knows me. He was a oh, okay. and I was a registrar, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> to be honest, usually I expect it to be in a referral letter or something. Okay. And if it's not, to be honest, you pick up, I mean, you know yourself, if you're mm. speaking to somebody mm, yeah. and they're giving you their history, you can usually tell if they're yeah. medical, and so I'll jump. Um, occasionally, I'll check, but I'll, but I, I have asked before, but not kind of into a little bit into the conversation. Hmm. But usually, somebody has asked me first because of the way that I've given my history. Hmm. You know, I remember I was working at a GP practice, and I remember the little system actually had a little highlight thing come up, and it was like this patient's a doctor. <laughs> and then so when the, so they knew that this person coming in was a doctor and they're like okay what do you want and the guy was like well you know I want this like, okay cool sorted no worries uh, and I found definitely with my GP like if I walk in and I say look I'm, I'm a, by the way I'm a radiologist I, I work out you know down this way and they're like okay what did you come in for I was like Ameprazole I was like alright fine sorted done you know just walk out I do find it makes things easier sometimes but then I, I told in a, on a previous episode where it actually became really difficult when I turned up to A&E with my sick father and um, they were very very mean and I felt like maybe maybe sometimes I'm not welcome um, being a doctor because I, I guess it's difficult to really gauge and actually sorry it reminds me of uh, something else that like my mum she you know my mum can be really funny about her health I've, I've talked about my mum my parents health and they they kind of like all this mumbo jumbo stuff sometimes and occasionally they will seek medical help and so my mum decided that you know Imran I need you to take a day off on this day and I was like oh what is it and she goes I just need to take this day a day off so I turned up to the Royal Free I think and um yeah, we're just sitting there and I was like, we're in urology. I didn't know you had any urology problems. I was like, yeah, yeah, just had a bit of a trouble, you know, and it's like, they're going to do something and I just need to be in early. I was like, early? 
but how early we're we going to ward and then next thing you know we're sitting there and it turns out they're going to do like um they're going to basically look into a urinary bladder because apparently they found a lump and um they didn't know i was a doctor and so they came in and they were talking to each other and there's like, okay so this lady she's such and such years old and um we're going to be doing investigations onto this lump and it could be um you know it could be something sinister and i went whoa hold up hold up sinister <laughs> sinister you need you guys need to back up right now what do you mean sinister <laughs> i looked at my mom i was like mom oh. and she was like it's all fine what are you, what's, oh, what are you worried about I was like, they said the word sinister oh, no. sinister is not a good oh. thing okay mom just stay can you can you just, oh. like, can i borrow yeah. you guys for a second please and i walked out and i explained to them listen you know my mom didn't tell me anything what on earth is going on and actually as soon as i told them who i was they were absolutely brilliant they were so so lovely they were so lovely to me they made sure that i was not worried and they made sure that i was told personally they actually came back from from having looked in thankfully everything was normal yeah um and i really appreciated that um but you could tell like how quickly the interaction changed you know as soon as they realized as a doc that yeah, fair enough. we're yeah. not going to use the word sinister we're going to just say say it the way it is because this guy knows what we're saying that's code yeah for bad badness there's also there's also the whole thing about you know not many perks in the nhs but you know you you also just want to maybe just go the extra mile for colleagues as well Mm. i think yeah because i i've i have very much um experienced that as a patient and been very grateful for it and kind of want to pay that forward there's got to be a perk right and if you can't do it your colleagues then yeah yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. I mean, I've had I've had a few times when someone's turned up with an ultrasound request, and it's like, I, I know you're in the middle of a list, but can I? It's like, yeah, go on, just jump in the middle of the list, and I'll I'll sort it out. No worries. And we do, we, you do what you can for each other, isn't it? Because we all know what it's like, you know, in yeah. that situation. Yeah. There was a tweet Speaking from. Which, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I'd be. <laughs> no, no, you go there was a tweet from Roshana where she talked about kind of uh, working with certain colleagues. And say if you're working with your training program director, who happened to be, you know, educational supervisor, and they're known to be a complete nightmare to their trainees, uh, to the extent that the entire region dreads working with them. How do you address that? Because in that position where they're at that kind of fulcrum, where you'd probably go to them first for issues. Then what do you do? Um, I thought it was an interesting question. It is an interesting question. What do you think then, Lynn? What, what do you make of this situation? I mean, I think um, there is always there's always going to be consultants or a consultant in a region who you can trust. Who, well, you would hope that there would always be somebody who is willing to address stuff and. I would, I mean, I think there's, so, so you go to a, a trusted consultant. I know that the, um, there was a, there was, it was either when we were talking to Safe Space last night or there was another th- thread on Twitter this week um, where somebody from the BME or who'd been to the BME about a similar kind of situation. And, um, and they were saying that the BME had actually mm. dealt with that really well and kind of taken anonymous accounts from lots of different people. And you know, it was a similar situation where there were multiple, multiple, multiple trainees involved. And actually just getting the, having the number involved was a very right. powerful mm. thing in itself. So um, so somebody kind of independent who can advocate for it. And, you know, and, and there are, you know, people have issues with the BME. But what I will say is, is that they're, because they're a big organisation, they have people that do this mm. stuff day in, day out who know the law like the back of their hands and who have who have done this before again and again 
Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? Like I, I think I've spoken about my own training a few times and um, I had a really, really difficult time. And uh, the TPD in particular uh, was very, very difficult. And it, actually, even worse for me was actually there was someone that came in as a new consultant and was apparently they told me, look, talk to him. You can relate to him. He's he's had difficulty with his training as well. He'd be really he'll be able to help you out. And then, so we went for coffee and we spoke for ages and I really felt like, oh, fine, I've got some, you know, I felt amazing that there was someone here that I could trust. Like, you know, someone who's going to get it, understand where I'm coming from. But then it turned out a couple of weeks later that I was getting told by other, like another consultant I got along with that this guy's, you know, basically gunning you behind your back. He's saying all sorts of things. And mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, I, don't, I can't oh, trust this guy no. either. Mm-hmm. I showed you some of the messages yeah, the other did. day, the WhatsApp messages. Yeah. And it's like, so he was doing something to my face, but then doing something behind it well, I mean, like then in that situation, like how would you have known, like who? To, because the problem is, I guess, as a registrar, is you don't know how close knit the department are. You know, you don't know what the interpersonal stuff is, right? I guess, mm. especially yeah. if you're an ST three, or you know, if you're really junior. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, is it worth? I mean, it's good to hear that the BMA got involved. I mean, that's that's something I remember when I um, was uh, uh, an F one in surgery, and I honestly didn't know. Um, who when I was having such an awful time I didn't know who to speak to and so I went to the BMA counselling service but knowing that they kind of intervened in another way um, is great How do you think there are avenues for people to kind of maybe even approach consultants from other specialties or I mean is that is that something or I mean or I mean or do you go to like the deanery but then what if they're mates like you, because you don't know who are in cahoots with yeah who. you don't know who's friends with who you know that's yeah and I think that I think that's why folk had, you know, talked about mm. an independent advocate because of that. I mean, the other, the other, there's also the nuclear option of kind of GMC yeah. and training surveys and things. So, I mean, the BMA actually came and helped, did they? So they, they helped this person out. I think, yeah, yeah. My, my understanding in that situation was that they did. I mean, it's worth a shot, isn't it? I never thought of that. No one ever said that to me. I was just mm. uh, plowing plow, yeah. through, taking yeah. all of that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't you don't know you need your union until you need your union. I had a after a period of long term sick a few years ago, I needed some kind of employment advice and the it was so incredibly useful to have an independent advocate there with me in meetings, somebody who could challenge the trust because they knew the law. Um it was so powerful actually and it really took a lot of pressure off me. So was it a case of they came with you to, to meetings or what did they just give you Oh, that's really good. Mm. So, so we had various meetings and phone calls, and then when I had um, meetings with HR and manager at work, um, oh. she came with me. And as I say, she's an employment advisor, so she spends all day every day dealing with employment mm. issues for doctors. And knew our HR department and had multiple, mm. you know, you know. So, she, so she's de- she deals with all the trusts kind of in the area, um, and that is so useful. I mean, did you feel as though like you'd be labelled? I mean, that'd be part of the worry, right? That would go through someone's head that, oh, right, I've got the BMA involved. I'm going to be labelled as the troublemaker um, now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, fair point. I never got that feeling, I have to say. Um, I never got that feeling. Um, I mean, what I will say is it wasn't because my manager was unsympathetic or unsupportive. He, he was great. HR might be slightly more difficult, but um, no, I never ever got that feeling. And, and I was really pretty unwell at the time and they could see that and they were actually very 
supportive of me having okay. that support well, with me. Well, that's good to know. I mean, I never, I never knew. I mean, yeah, I guess maybe if someone is out there that's having difficulty with their training, maybe at least a phone call, getting some advice from the BMA might be a good idea, which is something I never really, yeah. but you know, and as Theresa knows, things didn't go well for me. Um, but anyway, moving, uh, was, moving on. Yeah, there was a good response. Well, there was a response in the third oh, that yes. you guys had a, which was where someone framed it the other way, which is if you had a trainee if um who had everything right on their um on their cv and all of the kind of uh, competencies for the arcp which sounded kind of funny when they wrote it because i was a bit like why wow, you're looking really hard to like find a banana skin for this person but anyway <laughs> they're saying they, they can be really difficult because you know that they tick all the boxes and things but you know that they'd be horrendous to work with yeah, I mean, in that, um, we, I think we know what happened in that situation. Someone makes a phone call, don't they? I mean, someone, someone talks about it. In fact, yeah, I remember. Exactly. I mean, allegedly, this may have happened somewhere where there was someone that was primed for the job. They had the job all set up. Everyone was willing to take this person on, but all the registrars knew this person wasn't a nice person. But they managed to kind of keep it under wraps long enough away from the consultants until a consultant asked the registrars, "What's this person like?" And they all just literally, like, just came just out, dirt. just literally <laughs> poured out. And then, lo and behold. Like, Someone else out of the blue <laughs> walked in and took that job and everyone was like, what? And then it became apparent, like, oh, I see, someone someone did talk. Um, but, you know, like, that can be seen as a really negative thing from someone that's trying to apply for a job because, you know, when you're applying for a job, you want to feel as though you're coming in with an equal footing against the next person, the next person. But as much as you like to think it is, it, it really isn't, is it? Like, you kind of know that it's pegged for someone. You kind of know someone's already going to get that, you know? And also the person matters. I mean, I bang on about this all the time. Whenever people are talking about advice about consultant jobs, your colleagues are the absolute, absolute, absolute most important part of choosing your consultant job. Mm. And likewise, when you're when you're a, uh, a department and you're appointing another consultant, you're you're appointing somebody that you're going to be working with possibly for decades, mm. quite closely. You want somebody that you're going to go on with. You want somebody that's going to work well within the department. You don't want somebody who's going to make life difficult or be nasty or, you know, who a person is, is actually really important when you're appointing a consultant colleague. Yeah, I think um, I, the, I never really understood this until fairly recently, but like culture in a workplace is an absolutely very, very important thing. And you'll find that no matter what kind of person you are, you normally find somewhere where you fit. So if you're a kind of more of a DGH yeah. kind of person, you'll find a DGH. And yeah. then within, within DGHs, there's certain DGHs, I think they're more than DGH and some DGHs that no, they're just a DGH. But um, but but um, you just you'll find that you'll you'll find your space, you'll find your place. Is uh, what I'm what I'm saying in the in the grand scheme of of the medical world. Um, I mean, I just find that that company. I read this in a book about a guy by uh, called Tony Shea. I, I mentioned not so long ago, but he was talking about company culture and how it's so important. And that you know, when he started his company, it was a small company, and he had all his mates working with him, and everyone was really friendly. But as it got bigger and bigger, until the point it got bought by Microsoft, people who were coming into his company were using it as a stepping stone for the next job, which then completely changed the culture of the the entire workplace. And I kind of feel like when I read that, I was thinking it feels like you know when you're working these really big tertiary centres, the people trying to make careers off the big tertiary centres, so they've got a certain ethos about them. They work in a certain way. They want to get publications and papers and all that kind of thing. And so then you know it's 
you can see that kind of ethos working in, I mean, that would be, I guess, your Microsoft. But then you've got your, you know, small startup with all friends, which is kind of what I feel like a DJH is sort of. It feels like a bit of a, a yeah. bit of a startup. Everyone's kind of friends. Everyone knows each other. You know, I'm not sure how yeah. I, what I would say if a cardiology reg came up to me and said, I've got a problem with my cardiology consultant. I'd be like, well, I don't know what to do here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, well, that's funny because we wanted to ask you what we should be doing about um, our friend, our esteemed colleague. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yes. So in this situation, <laughs> what, sh- what should colleague. we do? Um, Where do we start kind of, with your cardiology buddies? Well, you know, like I was replying to some of his messages in the past, and I, I kind of went for like humorous things before. I remember once he, he said something about lifestyle, and I replied like, "Bro, do you even lift?" And he liked it. I was like, "Oh wait, that's not the response I wanted." Um, but this time around, <laughs> uh, like, he's his friend. Thrush is his friend. Look. I, know. I know. I always feel like when he tweets stuff, though, I always feel like I have to say something because I'm like, I don't. You like, you know how they say with like, oh, the elders of the village have to like come out and speak out. Like I'm like, oh god, say something. <laughs> We're not all horrible. Like what? Um, he's re- he's like uh, he's he's been doing the rounds, right? Uh, are mm. we going to talk about him? He has, but he's pulled out. He's he's gone for a, a new a new tack mm, this week. Yes. Sick sick of all the criticism, he's decided that he really needs to be seen as as valid and creditable within the NHS, and so he's gone to his registrar's folder and he's pulled out the bland the blandest MSF comment ever, saying this man is a very pleasant doctor or something like that. It's not even a great it's not a great compliment, is it? Like it's the one awful, said no, generic. It's not- it's like it's the blandest it's the generic bland one that you write about the rage star that you really yeah. don't know very well it, it reminds me of that you know the office episode where he was like oh tell me about someone that you really admire no not your dad though not your uncle not your brother and eventually it, came, it just felt like you know one of the situations you really kind of <laughs> looking for some sort of um you know uh some sort of confirmation that you you are actually good and uh, an esteemed colleague and um so what's he what's he done this week so he basically so there was he had a bit of a dig at someone about the boost bars didn't he and then mm. all of a sudden then he went for selva yeah. didn't he so selva tweeted yeah. something Oh, I missed oh, that. Oh, you missed that? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was that one again? Like, so it's a yeah. silver... Oh. I see I'm blocked. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. He said something, a reply, which is like, uh, the medical profession are 100% to blame for... Yeah, so, the, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. so Selva was that, talking yeah. about, you know, staffing and all, all the problems that we have with the NHS. And then suddenly, yeah. Asim goes, the, hundred, the medical profession is 100% to blame. Yeah, and quote tweeted Selva. Is he not going... Is he not actually developing full kind of anti-vac... Yeah, COVID conspiracy. Thing, I think you know? so. I think that's. I think that's kind of what he's going for when he's talking about the lifestyle thing. Because often when I when I have seen like anti-vax people, that's the kind of thing that they. That's the tack that they take. Like we have an immune system, is what they say. Mm. It's like mm. yeah, that's actually how vaccines work. Yeah, they use like you know they help. Yeah, <laughs> like like great. Um, so I just don't know. I mean, I feel like that's the tack he's taking, even though he's not really saying it he's- i've said this before and i said this a few times like if you ever confused why someone's doing something follow the money just follow the money yeah. and see where it goes follow the money 500 quid an appointment exactly so you're telling me that i've got to uh, you know if i want to have this guy's help and he's going to give me dietary advice which i thought you'd go to a dietitian for but anyway fair enough yeah. i'm going to talk to Asim, all right and i'm gonna to have to pay him 500 quid then as yeah. soon as as soon as there's that transaction you think, oh that's what you're after I mean, if you're going to do this for free, then I'd think, okay, you're on, you're on a proper crusade. But if you're going to yeah. ask me for money, then this is no crusade. This is a money-making scheme. That's what it feels like to me. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that. But then 
what I wanted to actually talk about, because Asim, I feel, is, and it's strange we're actually saying his name. Maybe we should blank it out. But um, Donut Man, um, Donut Boy. <laughs> donut Boy, yeah. Um, we need like a, yeah, like a Krispy Kreme like jing- jingle <laughs> or something. <laughs> but when he comes in, yeah, when we talk about him. But I feel like he's a symptom of a bigger problem, if that makes any sense. Because the guy's got 90, almost, well, 98.5 thousand followers on Twitter, right? There's not a yeah. small number of people. Even our esteemed colleague, Phil Lee, doesn't have that many people. And, you know, this know. guy's got humor. He's That's got looks. He's- <laughs> That's perhaps the biggest travesty of all. <laughs> he's got hats. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the hats. I mean, he's got yeah. it all. Yeah. And, you know, he's a genuinely caring person, as you know, as far as we know. But until he starts his Patreon. But um, he, <laughs> the thing is, like, with this, with this guy, I feel like, okay, that's the problem, but the bigger problem is that he's got that much of support, right? So why is this person, so there, there's clearly an appetite for someone who goes against the establishment, right? There's a clearly an appetite for this. So it feels yeah. like it's one of the situations where, you know, when you go to the restaurant and say, look, can I have a Coke? And they say, we only got Pepsi. You think, all right, fine, I have a Pepsi then. It's, it's yeah. about advertising. It's about yeah. it's about like you know he's he's advertising himself. He he's 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 kind of he's marketing himself better than the medical profession in its entirety. Like the entire medical profession is not as good at marketing themselves. Well, no, I mean, it's, isn't that just because like there is a consensus and and then I mean you, he's the kind of the one cr- crazy guy barking at the moon. But they need that they need the crazy guy barking at the moon. So he's that guy. So he fits mm. that niche. Whereas because everyone else. Yeah, I mean, is he any different from David Icke and Piers Corbin? Yeah. I mean, Piers Corbin is not better at advertising himself mm. in the medical profession. Are we losing a battle here? Because, you know, on one hand, you're getting told by patients that you're not doing enough face-to-face, the government are after you. So we're kind of being lumped. We're getting hit by the government. We're getting hit by the public. You know, who's who's on the doctor's side? And then you've got someone who's who's apparently a doctor. I mean, he's a doctor, right, uh, Malhotra? And, um, he's, a cons- he's, a, he's an accredited consultant cardiologist there you go i mean that just shows you how much that really means but anyway um (laughs) (laughs) don't take my efforts away from me but as in there's clearly an appetite for this they clear and you know the way we would like to see things is that doctors are the most trusted individuals aren't we we should be we're helping people we're not you know you come to the nhs yeah if you get an extra scan or you don't get a scan it doesn't make a difference to me i don't care whether you get a scan or don't get it i don't make any more i don't make any more money out of it but someone like Malhot will make more yeah. money out of you going and seeing him, right? I mean, there's an appetite for that. And is jeopardizing patients' trust. Yeah, exactly, you. exactly. And so yeah. what I wonder is like, there, there's, there always seems to be an appetite for this. And are we not doing a good enough job of being like open and appealing enough to, to general people that they wouldn't take your, our words over others? Like, why shouldn't they? Yeah. Should, surely, surely we should be the ones who believed. I definitely felt like that when I saw his tweet where he was talking about like not we're taking too many pills, we're like peddling pills. And I remember thinking, mm. that's why I think I responded so strongly because in my head I was like, all those people in like heart failure treatments or even people are taking the antiplatelets are like, you know, it's just dangerous. Like, what well, if one person just like stopped, stopped taking those Absolutely. drugs? But it reminds me of like what someone told me when like COVID was like really kicking off and I was feeling really, really stressed because um, it just felt like this huge kind of like hurricane was like heading towards like everyone really mm. and he goes just folk you, you can't really think about that you just got to think about the next patient and like just think about just the next patient that you deal with and just think about mm. and just do that like one at a time because you do make a difference on an individual level I mean this guy mm. yeah he's kind of like mm. spouting all this stuff and a lot of it is into the void a lot of it does fall on deaf ears and there are going to be people who are inclined to listen to the to, to that kind of nonsense right um but on an individual level, we do make a difference. I know it's hard to see and it's hard to shout about on Twitter, but 
um, we do we do make a difference. But 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 you see that in in your everyday work, patients. I was I was having a chat to my GP about this this week, and asking how they were getting on, and kind of saying that I'd been very grateful for their help over the last couple of weeks, and. She said the same thing. Almost all the patients that they are seeing are incredibly grateful and lovely and nice. And it's the same thing for me. When I'm seeing patients in clinic, they are all, they're not coming to me and saying, you've not seen me for this long over COVID, blah, 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 blah. They're saying, I'm so grateful that you're seeing me now. Yeah, I don't know what to make of all this. I mean, it's just uh, like... um for me i mean i've got i know i've got a family friend of mine and um they have got rheumatoid arthritis and it's really sad because um they kind of hit retirement age and suddenly the rheumatoid arthritis just dropped in it was just crazy like it suddenly became so bad that they were debilitated and you know the medical profession can only do so much her joints are getting destroyed you know and now she's like pretty much needing like a stair lift where she never needed one before it's one of those things that i always think about like i need to enjoy as much as i can right now because i don't know what's going to happen you know by the time i retire yeah. and then um, when I do speak to yeah. her, she's talking about cannabis oils that are going to like help her out. And then some homeopathic medicine person is going to help her. And I never say anything. She's like, oh, what do you reckon? And I just keep quiet because when someone is, is as desperate for help as this person is and with not much in the way of anything that's really going to, I mean, you know that joints are going to grow themselves back. And then this is when you start to get people who come out of the blue and be like, well, you know, if you have cannabis oil, it'll, it'll re remake your joints. You you do like, you get your fat cells from one area of your body, put it into your knee, you regenerate, you know, cartilage. And people are like, really? But there's no there's no proof behind it, but because you've said it and you've got a DR in front of you, you know, I'm going to listen to that, I'm going to try it out. But they're so desperate to have their health back. Like that desperation to have your health back is something I think we can all relate to on some level. Um, you can imagine being in that situation where you, you know, you take anyone's word for it. Someone tells you their diet's going to be the, the the help for all your ailments and give you a bad guy, a solid bad guy to hate for your problems. Yeah. It's hard. I seem yeah. food is more than nutrition. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting it's gone for that, isn't it? It's big farm, was it? Big Pharma and and diet, yeah. food, like uh, the food industry in general. I wonder what the guy eats. Does he just eat salads all day? And I don't know, like, what does he do? I mean, I'd love to know what he actually eats if he's got such a big problem. Imagine yeah. if we saw him with a boost. Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, such a scoop, my wouldn't word, it? that would be yeah, amazing. Yeah, it would be amazing, yeah. wouldn't it? I mean, because and of the tweets like that, he can uh, can he never have a Krispy Kreme? Is he going to have to be like, yeah. oh, I don't believe in Krispy Kreme? Never to have a Krispy Kreme when you're like, please sponsor us. Um, honestly, just... <laughs> well, that kind of position he's taken, that kind of, that extreme... I think, I feel like literally he has, if he gets caught with anything along those lines, then that's it, isn't it? All credibility yeah. is lost. He can't contextualize yeah. that, can he? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's no. a, it's a, it's a difficult place to put yourself into, isn't it? Um, I mean, speaking of difficult places to put yourself into, some people find we all talk, we saw another tweet not so long ago about um, being uh, being a bit too informal in WhatsApp messages and maybe throwing the odd. You know, you're trying to do a referral, and some apparently, you know, some referrals happen over WhatsApp. Believe it or not, I've had the odd referral through Twitter. <laughs> you know who you are. You know who you are. But um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, you know, putting a few emojis and that kind of thing. Is that is that is that cool? Are we are we okay to do emojis and fingers up, fingers down when we? Do, I mean, can I start to give thumbs down when people start to refer me things? Oh. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no <laughs> exactly, CTPA. no CTPA. Chest X-ray first. You know the drill. Uh, yeah. Um, what do we think? What do we think about this unofficial? Well, I'm the wrong person to ask. I'm absolutely the wrong person to ask because I'm a complete grandma um, and been around for a very long time and really. Uh, 
WhatsApp referrals are new to me, really. So <laughs> no, but no, but like you know, you navigate the whole spaces and Twitter thing. I still find that kind of quite difficult to do. There's a lot of technical stuff to do with that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. like uh, I, I, have you ever not? Have you ever kind of maybe sent like an email? I mean, I've definitely done this, like a heartfelt email, and then maybe got a reply from a consultant with a thumbs up, and that's it. <laughs> oh, I, I use emojis in my email to my sex ah. all the time. Ah, okay. really? There you go. But you notice there's a new there's a new WhatsApp feature where you can show you know the image only comes up once, and I was thinking, great, you know, like you know, so basically you can do it so it's seen once and delete straight away, like like oh, a bit yeah, of snap, right. like a Snapchat situation. And I thought, great, you know, sometimes I get messages from like old colleagues, and they're going to send me a scan. I have to really pay attention now. Like I don't open that file until I'm absolutely 100 percent ready with no kids around me. Otherwise, yeah. I'm going to send that scan again and again and again. Can you imagine? It's just start to go, uh, start to go all a bit crazy. Um, I mean, Lynn, you talked about your Twitter space. And I, I think we should probably mention it because I, th- I really like your Twitter space. I think it's a really, mm. I think one of, uh, Twitter's got a lot of good, th- bad things, doesn't it, really? But there are so many positive things that has come out of Twitter. We've seen friendships from a certain uh, duo that basically is going to take over our podcast very soon. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> we don't see their names on here. I can't, yeah. I'm not even going to say their names. I'm not, you know, yeah. you bring him in as friends, Trojan horse, and you bring him in as yeah. friends, and next thing you know, you're getting voted off your own oh. show. Um, I know, we're like trying to negotiate <laughs> to stay on. <laughs> like, we're just holding on <laughs> a thread. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, like, I think there's been lots of positives. We make lots of good friends, learn a lot of things, mm. and I, I really do feel... Um, that Twitter space must be a positive thing. I cannot see how it cannot be. I mean, tell us more about it. Yeah, so it, it's not something that we planned. It happened really organically. It kind of sprung from discussion about um, sexual harassment, sexual has- assault, etc. Really in the aftermath of the whole Sarah Everard um, thing. And um, there was one particular night where uh, Nina Jan- and Laura Evans and I had been kind of like DMing each other after a discussion about it and we just made our own Twitter space just to make it easier for the three of us to talk to each other and kind of expected it just to be the three of us chatting and a whole pile of people kind of came on and we had a really moving discussion where people talked about their experiences of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and other harassment within medicine. And um, it really, although it was incredibly hard to listen, somehow it felt really positive. I know Nina and I said afterwards that we felt much more, we felt much better about it having talked about our experiences and hearing other people sharing similar experiences than just kind of pushing on with it on our own. And a lot of people contacted us afterwards and said they had found it really helpful and would we do it again? And so it's kind of sprung into this roughly fortnightly um, space on a Tuesday night at nine. Um, It probably won't go on forever. Um, It feels currently like there's very much still a want for it and need for it and lots of people have contacted us to say that they have found it really helpful to know that they're not on their own and lots of people come and talk but lots of people come and listen and lots of those people have also contacted us to say I'm not brave enough to speak or you know I'm not comfortable to speak about it at the minute but actually just hearing other people have gone through the same thing makes me feel better and people have talked a lot about um, how they have felt it has really strengthened them in their stance so um, 
one one of the, the folk who's a very regular contributor said um, last night that that three or four times in the last few weeks she's come up against um, conversation or things that have been said that previously would have really upset her but she wouldn't have said anything and she felt really mm. emboldened after the discussions and she tackled it head on and found it really helpful so I think we're we're just so kind of grateful to to other people for buying in and contribute it, it only works because other people contribute and we're not there to give answers or provide solutions um, and it's not something that's going to be solved in five minutes but I feel strongly that being able to have open conversations about these things is the first start to kind of blowing open and, and making changes. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's impressive, isn't it? It's been going on for a few weeks now and I can see the positive sentiments that go towards it. And I've, I have come, I've come along when I, when I could. And I, for me anyway, it's important for me to listen to and be aware that, you know, this, this, and this happens, this is, a, this is a problem. And just understand like, you know, that life can be so difficult for, for some people having to go through something like that. And, um, you know, like, like you say, sometimes when you're in a tough situations, sometimes you just want to talk. It doesn't matter whether you've got answers or no answers, just saying it to someone. And sometimes exactly. it's preferable to exactly. talk to people that you don't necessarily know. And I think, I mean, that's kind of where, yeah. where, you know, I think Ajay does his Monday thing where like that came from because there was, a, I think, someone on Twitter that was saying they were feeling lonely. And I think it was going to turn out quite badly at one point. Like it, it looked like they were going to harm themselves. And so that came off from that where we were trying to build a space where um, if you were a lonely medic somewhere, you know, and you feel like you want no one to talk to, you just come in and have a chat about whatever it was. And if it's nice that like this also exists. And then I think Kode yeah. doesn't, I think Kode and Zander. And Pathos, they do the African Caribbean Society. So, I mean, we're, it, it kind of, it, it started off really about, about women and sexual harassment, but we are very aware that A, it's not only women that experience sexual harassment and there are all sorts of um, protected characteristics, um, who, uh, people with protected characteristics who experience harassment and bullying in, in all sorts of ways in healthcare. So we're really keen to kind of mm -hmm. open open that up um, and for people not just to think yeah. it's just about women who've been sexually yeah. harassed. It's really good that you do that. I must take just kind of uh, going over those topics must... Um must be quite demanding like on an emotional level but there are always there are always pockets of positive stuff whether it's hearing about areas of good practice mm -hmm. somewhere else in the country that we can replicate or hearing from um for instance this, this person who spoke about her experiences of feeling emboldened yeah. to stand up there's always little pockets mm. of positivity within it and i'm really i'm always really keen that we kind of shine a light on those as well it's not all just doom and gloom mm. yeah fair enough speaking of doom and gloom um we have one of our regular uh, cyclic stories that comes up which is about uh, physicians associates pay um oh. seems to come up every so often and um it's ama it's amazing really because it's, it's like it's so reliable this story um but yeah. anyway this it was kind of highlighted with it it came up on the junior doctors uh, subreddit but then it kind of made its way to twitter and i think perhaps maybe that's the source of the brigading and stuff that happened afterwards but anyway there was a job advert for a physician's associate and it was right above a clinical fellow job in in a similar unit i don't think it's the same place but um basically the pa um pay was was more than the clinical fellow and people were outraged there was out mm. there's so much outrage and then 
they had to lock the comments in the Reddit thread because people, there are these people who are kind of coming and posting saying like, oh, being a doctor is a very, you know, basically telling people like, um, to shut up complaining about pay and the mm. lucky to have a job and you know all that stuff you know like the usual tropes it's like you can almost like play bingo can't you as to like what's mm. going to come out totally totally mm. yeah. i mean the, the thing is like i always find it weird because like you know doctors don't like the idea that a pa who kind of you know is kind of encroaching on their territory then you know apparently making more than them like you know that is that's upsetting people and we see that again and again but then I, i've said this before like society doesn't work in the way that you think it works like i mean if you think that saving lives is going to get you paid that's not technically true like kicking a ball through a net if you're good at it is going to pay you a lot more i mean that that's just society and the way it is and, and the thing is right as much as people complain about that fellow job right Someone's taken that job. Someone's applied to that job and taken that job. I can almost guarantee it. No one's going to look at that job and say, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So as long as there's someone's mm-hmm. willing to take that job, yeah. that's the pay. That's how much it's worth. You're only worth as much as, much as someone's willing to pay you. But, but they have a, but the, the kind of the potential for development is, is completely way different. True. So you're, if you're talking purely financially, your, your potential earnings as a consultant mm. are going to be way more than a PA. Yeah. Yeah. Over, um, over a lifetime, you'd, you'd make yeah. more. Definitely. I mean, yeah. 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 So that, yep. Yeah. And then the, the other things they say are, well, they can get trained up to this area in this area, but then actually when they get to a certain senior point, they can just move across specialties so they could get to a senior position in A&E and then perhaps go to like cardiology or whatever. Whereas mm. if you're a doctor, you'd have to retrain. That's another one. That's another comment I saw. Oh, really? I mean, it just seems it's a different job completely. The the only different, yeah. I mean, the only similarity sounds like in terms of, you know, they just work in the same place with patients, but otherwise it just sat. But I mean, it feels like a different job. Like what you're talking about, a different training thing. You can jump between specialties. It's not, it's not the same thing. It can't be. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, so anyway, like we're, I mean, we're talking about, you know, I guess I've been, I just feel like um, we're going to see this PA thing come up again and again. And I'm sure, I'm so sure we've discussed it on previous, previous episodes of the whole PA pay mm. and the way people are with one another. And I don't know. I mean, do people, you know, when a doctor meets a PA, are they going to be a little, are they difficult with PAs? I mean, is it, is it always going to be that sort of, um, you know, like, you know, when the orthopedic people come in, you think, oh, great, here we go. Here's an orthopod. Are you not an MSK radiologist? Yeah, but I'm not, I, I might be, yeah. I, I might not have very much private work that's it <laughs> yeah i might be i might be um yeah just joking around um there was this thing once well where like there was this pa who was saying there was a, a trainee who refused to take referrals from pas remember that yeah yeah all this kind of stuff is like oh, this animosity that. yeah 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 but like yeah. what what for, man? Yeah. But this is this. Everything comes around the sun again. The same thing. If um, so, say ten, fifteen years ago on Doctor the Doctors Net website, all the same, exactly same conversations were happening about advanced nurse practitioners mm-hmm. and people calling them noctors and people refusing to take referrals from them. You know, nothing is new under the yeah. sun. Noctors. Wow, I never heard of uh, that. That's a good one. Nice. <laughs> I don't think I'll use it, but it's nice to know yeah. that exists. That's, that's cool, man. No. <laughs> um, speaking of Reddit, there was another thread on Reddit that perked our attention, wasn't it? Uh, uh, you know, was yeah. the difficulties with racism at work. And I mean, this kind of ties in with the Twitter spaces and what we've kind of built with the Monday and the Tuesdays and um, Zander's thing where someone like this may, may find, but I'm not saying they should, but maybe they would benefit 
benefit from that talking to other people who've been in a situation in a Twitter space with people they don't yeah. know. But this uh, particular Reddit tweet, uh, Reddit tweet, so Reddit, sorry, Redditors, uh, this it's Reddit um, post um, was uh, basically a uh, F2. Uh, they're saying they're BAME, female, petite, and they're basically facing a lot of racism at work. And, um, you know, they're finding it very difficult. They've noticed that there's, uh, some consultants are very nice to others who are not a BAME and they're not nice to them. And it's very, very noticeable, always undermining them. Uh, this, I mean, they're talking about clinical supervisors on the same boat, ES, the education supervisor in the same boat. And now they're really stressed about what's going to happen with mm-hmm. their clinical supervisor and uh, the ARCP. Um, a lot of what they said was really relatable, wasn't it? Like, yes. it was kind of, it, they basically talk about kind of microaggressions and gaslighting because it was kind of along the lines of if it made a small mistake, that tends to get like really amplified and particularly in front of other colleagues. And you can, she could just see with her own eyes, like her colleagues being treated differently and given the benefit of the doubt. But mm. um, I think we were both, when we were talking about it, we were talking about the, the replies, which are pretty much just people saying, yeah, and just kind of like, we don't know what to do about it. You just kind of, and and not in a kind of like mean way. People saying we've just been trying to just get through posts like that. Yeah, I think Ben, you know, spoke about this, didn't he? Where like he was in a difficult post, sounds like it was full of bullies, and he just thought, I just need to get through these few months. Just all it is, which is fine when you're there for a few months. But for my situation, I was there for years. Like you know, it's a lot of time to be able to take that kind of stuff. Yeah. And obviously, this person's there too. Maybe they're there for a few months, and I, I suck. I just took it all. Um, and looking back, I don't know if, if someone asked me honestly, like if you could go back, would you have changed the way you did things? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, um, there was an amazing reply here, which, um, uh, I just think t- takes like such, um, I don't know, it's just like such presence of mind, but it goes, I endured this behavior for a long time and it affected my mental health quite badly. Uh, I kept a diary of every occasion I was mistreated. And I brought this to a consultant I trusted and respected, who's also BAME. My concerns were taken seriously for a number of reasons. Um, generally, my feedback from the other consultants was universally good, and I had all, I had ample documented examples, witnesses of this consultant's behaviour. I presented my case as bullying, not racism. I recommend this approach. Labelling something as racist is almost impossible to prove unless they use slurs, and that's true. And that's such a thing in mm. the UK. Like it's such like mm. you know it's that kind of feeling. um, that you you have Um, and then as a result there was a formal investigation and um, like stuff happened but that person made a diary of it which I think was um, a really good idea Um, I guess if there was one positive to take from that um, wow I never thought of that well I have to say there's an interesting bit further on in that reply where where they said that they and a litany of other previously bullied BME doctors so I mean it doesn't doesn't take a lot to see the mm. final common denominator, mm. the lowest common denominator there, does it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's, di- it's really difficult as a trainee to know what the right thing to do is because I know you're told that you could talk to your education supervisor, but you can't trust them. Who do you go to? Your TPD, you can't trust them. Who do you go to? Go to the BMA <laughs> and they get they come back and then, you know, next thing you know, you're labelled as something. Like, it, it just feels like a, a losing yeah. situation. And if you want a consultant job in that region, if you've got family ties there, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you, you know that's that's the other worry, right? Like, let's say mm. you go and upset these people. You know, we've seen it. The trainees get taken away, but the consultants don't. They're still there. Yeah, yeah. And so they're just yeah. going to make a phone call or two, and that's it. You're done. You know, where are you going to get your job now? It's... Um, I don't know what the answer is, but I just at least at least people know that this stuff exists, and it, there, there are other people out there that have that same difficulty. And... Um, 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, we've been, I mean, Thrisha, we've been messaged a few times by talking about these kind of things that some people just appreciate the fact that we're talking about it uh, on mm-hmm. this forum and uh, on this platform. Um, but yeah, I think uh, it's been it's been pretty, I mean, there's not really much else to say this week. I think we've pretty much been through most things or no, Thrusha, you had something you want to talk about. Well, yeah, there was that, obviously. But like, yeah. uh, I also thought Rohan's tweet was kind of imp- was important. I don't think I don't feel like we talked yeah. about it enough, which is where um, so he was um, quote tweeting a tweet by Aif, um Abbey, um, who's an intensivist. Ifa. Ifa. Oh no! Oh god! Correct me. Ifa. Um, and so she was saying that adjusted for age, sex, severity of illness, comorbidities, and Down syndrome, patients with intellectual disability are thirty seven percent less likely to get NIV, forty percent less likely to be tubed, fifty percent less likely to be admitted to ICU. And um, I think it was, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? Because I, f- I feel like we've all been involved in conversations or kind of uh, about uh, resuscitation, esca- um, escalation, treatment plans and things, and um, how quickly pe- um, perhaps people may be to add certain comorbidities or certain things to forms. And um, I know that that's something that, you'll have experience a lot of experience of dr miller <laughs> yeah well in in, right. in adult con- in adult congenital heart disease obviously i have a really pretty large inpatient population with um learning difficulties um and i have definitely seen um people who have been treated differently um so there's a, a population of older patients who just didn't have their defects repaired because they had Down syndrome or whatever, and that, that wouldn't happen nowadays. But um, people, I think, are very quick to judge quality of life when they're thinking about um, resuscitation and mm-hmm. things. And um, and it is, it is incumbent upon us who look after patients on a chronic basis to keep these conversations going because it is very different when you see somebody in their normal clothes in your clinic walking about from when they're sitting in a hostel bed in their jammies looking a little bit ragged around the edges and we are I include myself in this we need to be better at having these conversations on on, on a regular everyday basis while people are well but I am entirely unsurprised at these figures given what I have seen yeah I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, I remember years ago, I spoke about this earlier that, um, yeah, there was a um, osteogenesis perfecta patient that came into the ward one day and I was on a respiratory ward. And I remember they came with a chest infection, but the consultant was absolutely panicking. He was like, we need to refer this patient on as soon as possible. You know, I can't I can't deal with someone who's so complex. And he went on about this for days. And finally, we had to we transfer this patient out. And he was actually kind of so relieved that, oh, you know, we, we transferred this patient out. But then... When it came down to it, it was just a chest infection. That's what it was. It was chest infection in a patient who was osteogenesis imperfecta. And it wasn't until like thinking about it, I thought the only reason I can see, I, I can see being uncomfortable with the situation you've not been in before. You're dealing with a di- an illness that you haven't dealt with before. But, you know, it kind of, you could almost feel as though there someone, if that person had got significantly more unwell, maybe they would have been like, well, they're complicated anyway. You know, what What else am I going to do? Like, we're going to have to make this call. And I do think it's a difficult call for doctors to make. And I think, Lynn, you, you came up with a really good point that these these discussions should be had when the patient is well, where you've seen the patient in their normal everyday mm-hmm. habitat, living, you know, having their life, so that you're not comparing their quality of life with your quality of life. 
because they're not comparable they're not comparable situations and so when you when you compare it to their quality of life then you can make a quality of life call which is still a difficult call don't you think like well and it's not for mm. us the the judgment on quality of life should be made by the patient um not not by mm. us i mean the I, I don't know what the documentation is like in in england but um the the dna cpr forms in scotland they're kind of obviously you have to document why you're seeing the patients not for attempt at resuscitation and um, attempt at CPR and there are, are there are like three yeah. sections that you can fill it in and, and, and one is essentially about medical stuff saying this is a futile situation mm-hmm. but the one where you're ticking quality of life is in the section where it's purely the decision based on the patient, by the, made by the patient. Um, it's not. It's not for a doctor to decide what somebody's quality of life is. It's for that patient and their mm. next of kin. But just looking at these figures, you kind of wonder whether that has something to do with it. Like because you're comparing it to your own quality of life, that you may make that mm. decision that you know then there may not be you know for for further treatment when actually. They they should and could have those treatments thrown at them and hopefully benefit from it and it's it's shocking things that mm. we see as I mean it's not shocking but when it's when it's out there like that you really feel like it does question your own practice and your initial knee jerk reaction to you know certain conditions is like okay fine like you know I maybe think should should think twice about you know when I think that someone should or shouldn't have treatment or you know things that are offered to them um, mm. I mean it's. And patients surprise you. I mean, I have patients who've absolutely shocked me where they have said they adamant, they're adamant that they do not want CPR mm. if they were to have an arrest. And, you know, this is a conversation in the cold light of day in, in outpatients. Mm. I haven't, you know, to my mind, I think, I can't believe that they think that, but they are they are adamant mm. about that. Oh, right, really? Okay, yeah, fine, fair enough. Because, mm. you know, on TV, they normally come back. So they, you know, they're, they're oh, well, yeah. you know, why wouldn't you? Exactly. Just saying that I don't, you don't want to bring it back. Because I've had that conversation or seen that conversation where, you know, you've said like, I, I'm, you know, I think your comorbidities, if something like that were to happen, I'm not sure that you'd make it. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, people always mm-hmm. come back. Like, no, you know, it's not like watching Neighbours or mm-hmm. something. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? It really is horrible. Having to have those conversations. I mean, that's one of the most challenging things of being a doctor. Um, it's just trying to make yeah. those calls, isn't it? I think like, it is. Uh, trying to understand, like, what yeah. what is the right call? What is the right call? No one really knows that answer. I mean, you, I know you're you're completely right, Lynn, in saying that it's a patient's choice. But, you know, there are occasions where you haven't to make that choice without having a patient to even ask, right? I mean, in, oh, uh, yeah, do? absolutely. But but those but those are based on, on medical yeah, sure. decisions. Mm. You know, those are based on medical entities, um, disease, functional yeah. reserve. It's 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 where it's where the issue is about quality. And to be honest, that's large where you're talking about intellectual mm. disability. That's what that's what you're, yeah, you're totally. basing it on, really, isn't it? When you're well, I think we've come like quite close to time. I mean, um, I did want to mention the story of uh, one uh, one of literally from a couple of days ago, a cardiology registrar colleague put his finger in my hole. Um, <laughs> which is um, which I thought was I mean I didn't know I didn't give him permission or anything and he just did it and um, basically the next safe space is in two weeks through uh, I dare you to tell that story in that on that Tuesday <laughs> oh, 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 but anyway I should I should explain 
Um, I just wanted a nice headline. Um, so like I've got a bit of an ulnar nerve palsy. Um, you know, I had hand surgery recently and so I've got a bit of muscle wasting kind of over my thumb. And so basically there's a bit of a recess and I was using a mouse in the reporting room. I was doing some research stuff and one of my colleagues here um, just kind of came in and he was kind of talking to talking at me whilst I was trying to do some measurements. I wanted him to go away anyway, but um, he just randomly just put his finger into the hole in between my finger and thumb. And then was like, what's that? And um, I think he he's like, what happened to your hand? And he's not someone that I'm particularly like friendly with. Or no, I mean, I've kind of like, I obviously know who he is and he obviously works in the same place as me. But, you know, we've not like hung out or we don't WhatsApp or frequent. So I kind of felt like he uh, overstepped a boundary. And so it did kind of make me reflect a bit on like the fact that this person's just rotated to to where I am and I'm being really specific now oh god are we going to be able to keep this in <laughs> but like, <laughs> we have to work together and does he listen to the podcast like, no there's no way he's way too like he's kind of this uh, he is a bit more of the stereotypical in- interventional registrar who's just I mean that's that's it actually that behavior was like as soon as he did, like, did that and he went away I was like that's exactly how I'd expect like an interventional reg, you know, the kind of to behave. Yeah. And um, I guess the reason why I'm mentioning it now is because at the time I just kind of was just uh, sat there in apoplectic rage, but kind of not <laughs> able to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying it here, but I have to work with this guy. So if anyone has any tips on how I should deal with this guy, can you just uh, DM me? <laughs> Tell me what to do, God. I mean, it sounds like he just saw you as a clinical problem. Like, yeah, you're yeah, just yeah. another, you know, single best answer. Yeah. What's that? Done, yeah, what's that? You know, and didn't really think about think yeah. about the bigger problem here. And, I mean, his aunt, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult when you're sort of diagnosing colleagues and stuff, isn't it? Like your colleagues being unwell, your colleagues having these situations. And, you know, even if it's obvious and you can tell what it is, do you really say it? Do you say something? Yeah. And if it had come from a place of him wanting to help me, I think I probably would have yeah. been okay. But he that does just, not uh, sound like it was coming from a place of concern. No, I could still show him the middle no. finger, I suppose. So that still works. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could do. You could do. Anyway, um, cool. I guess I mean we've been going on for time, haven't we? Um, so, Lynn, thank you so much for for joining yeah. us on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been really, really fun. I think, um, you know, I think we've been able to get through most of the craziness of this week and no doubt we'll have more craziness next week. If we're back next week at all, Twitter. Actually, you know what? Where oh, yeah. are we on this? Where are we on this? Did you see this poll that come out, um, Lynn, this, from oh, no. Senka? I want to see oh, I, I want to see where we are on this poll. So there was a poll. Senka. Senka thank you, Senka, for this, by the way. Uh, didn't break my heart, yeah. not even a little bit. Um, but um, there you go. Look, oh, there we go. Oh my God, it's 60-40. Okay, so look, Jesus. the tweet no. is, petition to permanently replace Therusha and Imran with Nina and Beth and John. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and she's framed it. She's framed it and not, like, it's keep it INT and then glow up <laughs> to N and D. I mean, when you put it that yeah, way, yeah. that's like stick or twist. I think if she'd have framed it differently, I think the numbers would have been very different. Yeah, we'd like to think so. Yeah, so 60% <laughs> so far means that we're cancelled. We've been oh. we've been wondering when we're going to get cancelled and this is it, uh, <laughs> got cancelled. Yeah. Um, no cool, well, well no, uh, it, well, maybe it will be us next week. We don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, anyway, yeah, thank yeah. you so much for listening. Uh, thank you uh, so much for being as entertaining as always. Like I say every week, uh, let's try and be nice to each other. Let's stay out of trouble and um, let's not get cancelled. All right. Have a great week, everyone. Bye. And you've been listening to Two Medics and One Mike with Imran Lasker and Therusha Gwadna. Thank you for listening. <laughs>